Hey, I'm Donovan. Uh, that's Ayush, and we're back with another episode of In Case You Missed It. It's been a while. We've, uh, we're both pretty busy with school and college, but now that's in the summer, we're uh, wanting to start up again. And today, we're really interested in covering uh, a very unfortunate and very serious topic, which is the state of gun violence in this country. Yeah, I mean, over the last like two or three weeks, we've seen an insane amount of shootings plague the nation, especially in Texas, Maryland, New York, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, and Tennessee, to just name a few. But those are just the ones that are being publicized. There's dozens and dozens of more ones that haven't been publicized and like just don't make media that have been like just plaguing the entire nation. And within this small period of time, we've seen almost the most amount of gun violence we've seen ever before. And it's really concerning about like what the United States should be doing. Yeah, because the United States compared to other wealthy nations and even compared to a lot of lower income nations had a shockingly high rate of gun violence, um, over 40,000 a year for quite a while. And that, that was before, um, you know, a massive increase in gun purchases and gun violence with the start of the COVID pandemic. And so th this is a, a big issue recently, and it's also an issue with a lot of history in this country. Yeah, and before we kind of get into a little bit about the history of gun violence, uh, we also wanted to just take a look at what some other countries are doing in response, because in the U.S. currently, we've been trying to push towards some sort of reforms in the House and Senate, but it's only been so mediocre. Meanwhile, our um, neighbors to the north, Canada, have been like passing sweeping gun reforms in response to the violence that's happening to the U.S. So it's, it just shows that, that polarization, the climate that we have within politics in the U.S. is really just stopping anything from getting done. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you also saw Scotland had a, the, a Dunblane school shooting and then changed their laws shortly after that. And so other countries have responded in a way the U.S., has been unwilling and, uh, and according to some view, constitutionally unable uh, to respond. But we haven't, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, yeah, and just, just kind of like go a little bit into like the history of gun violence. Um, the majority of gun reform started in the 1930s and it started with this primarily this act called the National Firearms Act that was implemented by FDR, I think in 1934, and it was characterized as this new deal for crime. And it was mainly trying to like curtail any sort of like gunland crimes from the St. Valentine's Day massacre. You mean gangland? Yeah, gangland, my apologies. <laughs> yeah, the, in the, like the whole increase of crime during pro, organized crime during prohibition, part of that crackdown. Yeah, and it, actually had some really big impacts because the, as you know a little bit about FDR, or if you don't know, FDR had some really sweeping changes and he kind of like extended a lot of what the government could do at that time. He was overstepping in some ways in certain areas. And one of the ways that he was curtailing gun violence with this act was to not only um, like impose taxes on the selling of certain types of firearms, including like short bell shotguns, rifles, but also like in including like 
um, more restrictions on just like the sale of certain types of guns. So at that time, I think it was like a $200 tax, which is absolutely insane because that amount of money is something that people just did not have readily available. Do you know how much that would be in today's money? I don't know, but I cannot imagine, especially during like like the Great Depression type of like timeline. Yeah. $200 is just something that people did not have. So that meant like the only people who could afford guns were like rich people. And it, it's just, it, it just seems like a very effective way of curtailing crime at that very time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... I think from there, that really set the motion of some sort of gun reform. And over the years, we had some sort of changes. It kept on increasing and increasing with the Federal Firearms Act of 1938, requiring gun manufacturers and dealers to obtain federal arm licenses. This sort of also continued until we got to the assassination of JFK. And unfortunately, that happened. But as a result of it, there were some sweeping gun violence reforms that were implemented that really cracked down on the sale of any guns. And I think gun restrictions peaked during the Clinton administration with the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994. And it's also known as just like the assault rifle ban, making sure that no one could be purchasing assault weapons anymore. Yeah, and we'll, we might talk more about like the various debates on the efficacy of this regulations later. Uh, but one thing I want to say about the assault rifle ban is that uh, an interesting fact that was seen is that you did pretty quickly police departments start seeing less shootings happening with assault uh, weapons. And they didn't necessarily, even when they weren't necessarily um, in all cases seeing less shootings overall, though crime was declining at the moment for reasons that are controversial. Um, but they, they clearly did see that the weapons criminals were forced to use were different. And also the other thing that might be kind of wondered about this is, you know, there, we see all these gun regulations, um, but, you know, what, what does this have to say about the Second Amendment? Or what does the Second Amendment have to say about this? And so if the Second Amendment uh, has, you know, two clauses, uh, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Uh, and, and so the interesting part of that amendment is that it, the Second Amendment is really the only one that has sort of that first part of that clause that seems to suggest the reason for it. And so from the very beginning of Supreme Court case on it, it was really kind of an issue of, well, how important is that first clause in explaining the meaning of the second? So in two very early 1800 Supreme Court cases, the Supreme Court uh, in, held in Krushank and Presser a, a few different things. One is that the Second Amendment did not apply to state government. So they had a lot more power to, con- to regulate like weapons and their people's rights than the federal government had. The second was that um, pub- like there was a balance between sort of individual rights um, and, and public safety. And then the third, Thing that was held in the specific case presser is that the idea of that like a private army and like a privately organized militia does not have like an inherent right to operate um and that what the the things that the federal government can't do is to stop people from being able to defend the state as a collective liberty 
is the is what was ruled in presser and so that's kind of the a lot of the early laws kind of very much emphasized the idea of the militia part of the clause being important and also a clear separation between what it meant for the states and what it meant for the federal government yeah it, it, this like kind of like line and this barrier the separation kind of started to fizzle away in the 1939 court case of the U.S. versus Miller. And in that care case, it basically said that there was, it, there was like no relationship between having a sawed off shotgun and like this well-regulated militia. And we can't really pr use the second amendment, right, to guarantee and bear such an instrument. So it was really interesting because in these past court cases, they had basically said that states do this, we're going to focus on this. But then later on in this 1939 case, they're like, okay, maybe, maybe that first clause isn't necessarily completely always going to hold true, right? Like maybe in some circumstances, we don't necessarily need to allow individuals to have like unlimited guns and say, per se. Um, and yeah, and the other thing that is it really so the, all the these three early court cases, all of them within their decision, reference the first part of that clause, um, and basically, you know, the idea being that in, in Miller, that it's not an unlimited right because you don't have a right to a sawed-off shotgun because it's not relevant, um, and so the, even there's still some things the federal government can regulate. Um, and that's also why they could pass all these other laws that we talked about after JFK assassination and the assault weapon ban. Um, but what you started to see with some new cases before the Supreme Court more recently is a change in how they chose to interpret that amendment. As in, in the Supreme Court case, uh, Heller versus the District of Columbia, the Supreme Court basically held that the Second Amendment is actually just a guarantee of an individual right to keep and bear arms without needing any connection to the sort of collective idea of a militia. Because in that case, um, it was a regulation the District of Columbia had on registering new handguns and requiring handguns that were also always already held to have um, some sort of safety mechanism in place when it was being stored. Uh, and inside a private residence. So sort of a limit, they didn't, they didn't outright ban the weapons entirely, but they had these limits on their usage. And then this 5-4 decision, the Supreme Court held that that ban, which had been in place for a fair bit, was, over, was unconstitutional and required uh, a much greater right to access a handgun by basically arguing that the Second Amendment is a individual right that guarantees access to guns that are commonly in use at the time was still banning, allowing bans on particular, potentially, potentially lethal or, you know, unusual weapons. Uh, and they, they called this a deeply and uh, fundamentally rooted right of individuals in this country. And they, they argue this by looking at a bunch of different state constitutions and stuff that existed around the time. Uh, to say that like people just inherently believed in this right to an individual right to a gun. And then obviously there are dissents to this case. One argued that if the fact that the Second Amendment is different from other 
you know, pieces of writing that guaranteed individual rights is important because that means they chose not to have this one be individual, even though others wrote theirs to be individual. And then uh, another dissent is that the idea of whatever guns are majorly in use is um, inconsistent with the idea that that can change. And if you look right now, machine guns have been banned for a long time because they were banned when they were new. But if they were unbanned and then people started buying them a lot, it would then become unconstitutional to reban them once they're commonly in use, which is a, a kind of a problematic legal stance to take, in my opinion, and also Justice uh, Stephen Breyer's opinion. <laughs> Yeah, and kind of going on to like the second case that was really monumental, it was um, not the Heller case, but rather McDonald versus um, Chicago. And in the case, it kind of posed a similar question and it worked off of like this precedent set by District of Columbia versus Heller because it was actually just shortly after, like two or three years after. And what it kind of wanted to look at is if the Second Amendment also applied to states because of some because of the 14th Amendment's uh, clause about a due process. And it was really interesting because it, it, at the end of the day, it was the same five four split. And it was once again, like all the conservative justices siding with it and all the um, uh, liberal judges and uh, siding like uh, dissenting. And it, it kind of reaffirmed something that the initial case was doing in like the Miller case, which is just that the federal government does have some sort of say in what all is happening, but also the second amendment is something that does apply to states, right? So you can't just be unlawfully restricting all of these in their like in their ideas, like you can't be just restricting all sorts of guns in the way that like the um, District of Columbia case was doing. But this was a little bit more like comprehensive because DC is a special zone while I guess Chicago is just like every other American city. So the Heller versus District of Columbia set a good example of what really works in DC, but it didn't really say, does that necessarily apply to all the states as well and all the individual cities? And this court case basically settled that, right? That that second amendment protection also extends to every single state and not just this special zone of DC. So we, we can kind of see this like flipping back and forth, right? Like in the 1930s, the federal government and like the Supreme Court was just like, okay, we, we can ban some guns because it doesn't necessarily meet the first part of the clause. But later on, they started to realize that maybe this second part of the clause is also super important. And that's what a lot of conservative justices really keyed on and which is what what led to like this overwhelming amount of decisions and just court cases that were now citing like, oh, the Second Amendment is something that should be a little bit more free due to the second clause. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with these, this, these decisions overall, their net effect is to greatly eliminate what states can and what states and cities can and can't do um, in terms of guns, what gun control or gun safety measures, however you want to call it. And uh, an interesting case study really for the effects of that is there is still some leeway in terms of what states can require in terms of licensing and training requirements. 
even though they can't outright ban the weapons themselves. Uh, and so when you see that around the same time in 2007, the states of Missouri and Delaware changed their licensing laws and pretty like moving in the opposite direction ways, Delaware becoming more strict, adding a training period and such, uh, and Missouri becoming less strict, allowing more open carry and easier access to weapons. And you see divergence in crime rates that isn't easily explained by other factors. Uh, and then overall, looking at countries and states across the country, uh, across the countries across the country and, and countries across the world, you see a pretty clear trend between gun safety laws um, and gun control measures and, and regulations and how long it takes to get a weapon and so forth, and also the amount of weapons in a, in a locale and the rate of violence and gun violence in particular. Uh, specifically, uh, suicides as well, not just murders, tend to drop when you have these regulations in place. But yeah. the, the ability to have these regulations is now limited, which is a, a, a fundamental thing to consider when looking at what we see happening in our country. Yeah, for sure. And all these like changes and laws were also like very much like not only were they paralleled with what was happening with the Supreme Court cases, but they were also paralleled with just what was happening in terms of mass shootings at that time. Because up until like the early 2000s, I don't believe that there were a lot of mass shootings. I think the biggest thing was Columbine that we saw in 1999 and that really shook the nation. And a lot of people were willing to, okay, we need to crack down a little bit more on gun control. But I think something fundamentally changed towards our attitude with gun control when the Sandy Hook shooting happened. And that was really big because it was not only a shift towards like, I guess, more modern gun policies, but it started this really important rhetoric that the NRA like kept on pushing for any gun violence that happened after, which is that like only th the only thing that can stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And this like influenced any sort of reforms because not only was the NRI not really taking any sort of like blame for the situation, but they were saying that we need to double up on the amount of guns that we have because that's the only way we can like protect our children, right? So this started like this entire campaign of stripping all these gun laws that were in place. And that's why we saw like a lot of like the early 2000s gun laws starting to change and late into like the 2010s and stuff. And also how alongside of these uh, changes, like the Supreme Court case started to focus a little bit more or on the second parts of the second amendments. So like, I think there were like influential things that were happening here and there and whether they can be like traced back to oh sandy hook or a particular mass shooting or if they can be traced back to like a particular court case is kind of difficult because they all kind of like complemented each other at the same amount of time yeah and and a lot of things with crime and violence in general are pretty hard to track down exact causes um but what, what is pretty clear is that america is is unique in the fact that we have these mass shootings and well certainly not unique in gun violence unique in the scale of our gun violence mm -hmm. yeah so then there's something going on here because over a third of the world's mass shootings um excluding like politically motivated terrorist attacks um go or carried organized by a terrorist organization uh, have been in the United States over the last 80, 50 years. Mm -hmm. 
And it really also makes me think like, what if we never had the Second Amendment in place when the Constitution was drafted, right? Like these Bill of Rights, like what if the Second Amendment was worded differently initially, or like the Second Amendment wasn't really included, but it was just something that was just like known, right? Like that people have the right to guns, but it wasn't necessarily included on a piece of paper. How would our, our like attitudes towards gun control change? Like, would we still see this like push for everyone whole, like owning guns or not? And like, because I don't think a lot of other countries and developed countries just have this like set in stone second amendment that's in their constitution that it's so important to have guns compared to like the US where it's like one of our very first amendments. Yeah, it's definitely, it is, it, the fact that the amendment was included says something about our culture. Uh, at the time and the culture of a really the select group of people who are making these Bill of Rights, but also the way its interpretation has changed um, and the, has shown changes in our culture. And the fact that it is in there definitely creates sort of a rallying cry around it and sort of a, enhances a gun culture that would be lessened if it hadn't been you know, decided to be included in one you know, series of meetings in 1791. Mm -hmm. And kind of looking a little bit more at what's happening a little bit recently because of these mass shootings, because the history behind it is like really complicated, but it's all led back to this one thing. It's just that we have a stripping of gun reforms that were adopted throughout the 1900s, but now have just been taken away court case after court case and law after law. And uh, we're in this very particular situation because every time there's like a mass shooting, there's a rally for some sort of change, but that change never like manifests. And especially right now where we have like this influx of mass shootings in such a short period of time. And I think it was really like just more complicated because a lot of these mass shootings were targeting children and not just like adults. So that really spoke to a lot of people, but we still see that there is differences in the way that different pol like political groups want to handle this right like a lot of the uh, house is willing to support the gun control just because like democrats have more of a majority there but in the senate is still much more complicated because there is more of like a 50 50 split and it, it, it's just really really difficult to get anything going without all, any sort of like filibustering and stuff like that and it, there's been like a very common sentiment among also just like Senate individuals that they want all other like political branch or sorry government branches to just stay out of what they're doing like they've said like Joe Biden please don't get involved like the house shouldn't be involved like I think any sort of change that is going to happen is going to come out of the Senate and if it doesn't come out of the Senate it's not really going to happen yeah, and I, I'm not confident. I know Chuck Schumer decided he wanted to try to take a more bipartisan approach and not just, you know, for the symbolic purposes, you know, have the House bill that was partisan fail in the Senate. But I just don't think there's really going to be a bipartisan bill, even though majorities of Americans support, you know, increased mental health funding and also support, which is sort of an unrelated topic in some ways, but something Republicans like to tie into gun control. Uh, and, and they support red flag laws uh, and they support waiting periods to buy a gun. 
And though it's a much smaller majority, still the majority support things like the assault weapons ban and like magazine capacity bans. Uh, and so despite there being a, a sizable majority in favor of these, uh, elected officials don't have, on the Republican side, don't have enough motivation to actually get this done. And these courts, especially with a 60 majority, have so much power to prevent anything that they might want to do from getting passed anyway, or from getting enforced anyway. Yeah, and it, it, it's just such a weird battle right now for any sort of like gun control. And it's really unfortunate. And like, even if anything does get passed, you're just like worrying, maybe the Supreme Court will strike it down or another court will strike it down and it'll just eventually get to the Supreme Court. Yeah, because I mean, with, the, with this 6-3 majority, who knows what they would say about an assault weapons ban. Uh, yeah. That that hasn't been before the court since the Heller. That law hasn't ex- that law existed before the Heller and McDonald decisions, and now they might not allow it to go through. It, it's really up to them. Uh, the current Supreme Court justices, I would say, have shown very little uh, desire or, or care that their decisions stand up to like academic legal scrutiny. Yeah, and. I think it is just like, it, it just shows how much power the current Supreme Court also has, because especially with like the leaks about the Roe v. Wade being overturned, right? It, it, this is just like another set of like court cases or like potential court cases that could end up into the hands of the Supreme Court. And maybe they might just strike down like a whole, like wha- like vast, like set of gun control policies that are even currently implemented with their decisions so it's such a weird position to be in for a lot of like politicians and it's just a weird position as an american because you rely on your institutions to create change but you're also scared maybe that change might result in something even more backwards than even more backwards and really an extremely unfortunate status quo and you know, there are things aside from gun control that can improve, obviously, the issues of violence and decrease crime and whatnot. Um, and those have their own pros and cons that could fill a whole other episodes worth, multiple episodes worth, uh, of course. Um, but just this fundamental, the fact that these weapons are constitutionally going to be so available and that the regulations we could put on are so politically hard. Uh, is going to cause a problem. And the Supreme Court causing problems is probably a topic we'll talk about a little bit more coming up. But that might be all I have to say for now on this one. Yeah, I mean, we can just hope for the best and hope that the amount of like shootings do curtail pretty soon. But as of right now, with politics just being at a complete standstill and nothing getting done it doesn't seem like things are really going to change unfortunately but I think, yeah i i do think that it, it is something that needs to be addressed and we're really glad to be able to cover it in this episode so we really thank you guys for tuning in and we hope to continue covering i think some good news in the future about this topic hopefully yeah have a great day guys